Rusty Quill presents. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is entry 3102, titled Reflection, by an exchange member going by the name Priestess of Spiders, recorded by Jess Sigard. I have always been afraid of mirrors, ever since I was a young child. I knew it was irrational, of course. I was never afraid when I would see my reflection in a puddle or on the darkened window of a shop as I walked down the street. It was specifically mirrors which made me uncomfortable. I always feared that I would see something other than myself looking back at me. This explains why I was less than thrilled to find the large, antique silver mirror in the bedroom of the house I was renting. Were it my own place, I would have thrown it out then and there, leaving it on the curb and relying solely upon the mirror in the modern and well-kept bathroom for all necessary reflective purposes. Alas, I didn't think my landlord would think too highly of his tenant tossing out expensive antique furniture so I contented myself to simply move it into a spare room. I had moved to the house for the simple reason that it was fairly cheap and I didn't have much other choice. My husband passed away earlier that year due to a heart condition, leaving me simultaneously a widow and solely responsible for the care of my son, Chester. 
Fortunately, my husband's life insurance policy turned out to be reasonably generous, but I still needed to downgrade our living situation if I was to take care of Chester without another source of income. Beyond the obvious fact that I have now been left to raise a child without the assistance of a spouse, there is another reason why I cannot supplement my funds by taking on a job. Chester is autistic. I want to make it very clear I'm not an autism mom. I loathe the self-absorbed whiners who spend every spare second complaining about the immense burden of raising an autistic child, who bellyache endlessly about how difficult their lives are. I hate all the videos of exasperated parents recording their child's meltdown on camera to show all the world how difficult it is for them. I am disgusted whenever I see some selfish moron recording ABA therapy to keep unruly autistic children's more unconventional behaviors in check. My son is not a cross to bear, not a weight on my shoulders. He is my child, and I love him. I won't deny it can be difficult sometimes, but I can only imagine how hard it is for him. I find the terms high-functioning and low-functioning are relatively useless descriptors. Like most things in life, it is a tad more complicated than that. Chester is, generally speaking, nonverbal, and I've never known him to say more than 20 words in a single day. In addition, he tends to get overstimulated quite quickly from loud noises and often flaps his hands as a form of stimming, especially when he is having some difficulty expressing what he wants. The only behavior of his which ever actually frustrates me is his elopement, which in the context of autism means that he has a tendency to wander off or run away whenever he feels stressed. We work around these traits, and I think generally I've been able to make life quite comfortable for him. Chester has always shown quite an aptitude for reading and writing, despite his relatively young age of only nine years old at the time we moved. When he needed something that cannot be articulated through gestures or single words, he would write it down on a whiteboard I'd given him for this purpose. To help with his sensory issues regarding loud noises, I purchased a set of earplugs for him, the same sort one would wear at a gun range to prevent hearing loss. These generally aren't necessary within the confines of the house, but on those occasions when we do go out in public, I genuinely think they help him quite a bit. Given his condition combined with the relative isolation of our new rural home, it has been necessary to homeschool Chester, though that hasn't been any sort of problem. Before I got married, I spent a few years teaching elementary school, so I already have the required skills. I've always believed in a somewhat more active approach to learning than some of my peers, and since our new home is located directly next to a forest, this was fairly easy to accomplish. The house itself was rather old, built in the 1920s if my landlord was to be believed. While recently renovated to a more modern standard at some point in the preceding decades, it still has an air of oldness to it, something in the angles and general structure of the place. The main feature that seemed significantly out of place was the wrought iron fence that surrounded the house, a far cry from the traditional wooden fence I was used to from a life in the suburbs. There was no formal gate that led out to the forest behind the house, just a gap in the fencing with a small pile of rusting iron posts nearby. I never asked the landlord about it, but 
Judging by a stump outside the boundaries of the backyard, I assumed a tree must have fallen down and damaged it. Children don't want to sit still and be lectured. They want to be outside, to run around and be active. I'd always try to teach Chester his lessons in a way that connected to the forest. I'd lift up logs and show him all the squirming creatures underneath so I could teach him all the differences between them. I'd have him count the rings of a fallen tree and teach him about the things that happened in the tree's long and storied life. I know that sometimes he would get bored. While I do believe kids love learning, I'm not an idiot. I know that sometimes children just want to run and play, but I genuinely do believe he got more out of our lesson in the woods than he would have gotten from a traditional school environment. Even outside of the context of Chester's lessons, we spent a lot of time in those woods, slipping out through the gap in the fence into the forest beyond. There was something so peaceful about that place. It felt remarkably untouched by the civilization that bordered it. I'm not sure exactly how far the forest extended, but it always seemed to go on forever. Like if you just kept walking, you could go the whole rest of your life surrounded by trees. I always kept a fairly close eye on Chester when we were out there. As much as I loved the place, I did worry that he would simply run off, but there was never anything stressful enough in the woods to make him do so. The only real concern was to make sure he took off his shoes once he got back to the house, as otherwise he would track dirt inside, making quite the mess. Things went on the way I described them for about a year after my husband's passing. In between my caring for Chester and all the mundane errands of modern life, I attended therapy and worked to move on from the loss. I began to make peace with the fact that he was gone. Chester and I celebrated his 10th birthday out in the woods, moving to the backyard once night fell so we could finish off the evening roasting hot dogs over the fire pit while I read him some relatively tame ghost stories. Chester didn't like scary movies or violent video games, but gently spooky stories, the sort that sent a pleasant chill down your spine, made him quite happy. I believe I was reading out the mezzotint to him when we heard the music. It was a soft, strange sound, a faint piping emanating out from the forest beyond, gentle yet eerie somehow. The faint notes reminded me of the sound of panpipes, but not quite. If I listened very closely, I could almost discern a faint drumming as well. Chester looked out into the darkness beyond the fire, flapping his hands gently. He didn't seem upset or scared, just faintly awestruck. Fairies, I heard him whisper. I felt Somewhat uncomfortable as we both looked out into the blackness of the forest, the sound of crickets had died utterly as soon as the piping began, and we sat in silence, listening to that peculiar and otherworldly performance. It felt like something out of a dream, and I don't think it would be possible for me to recall the melody in any real detail. It was ephemeral, somehow slipping through the cracks of my memory like water through a sieve even as I listened. At some point, the music ceased, and the crickets returned to their chirping. I let Chester back inside and tucked him gently into bed. I've never been especially afraid of intruders, given how far away we were from any major population center, but that night I double-checked all the doors and windows in the house were firmly locked.
I didn't sleep well that night. I'll admit I'd still not gotten used to sleeping alone and often had difficulty falling asleep, but this felt different somehow. It seemed that whenever I was close to finally falling unconscious, I'd see a shadow pass across the wall or hear something just on the very edge of my perception, something that reminded me faintly of music. Whenever I'd jolt up in bed, looking or listening for what I thought had disturbed me, there was nothing there. At some point, I must have finally fallen asleep because I found myself blinking out the daylight from my uncovered window, groggy and irritable. My skull throbbed with a terrible headache. My alarm clock hadn't gone off, but seemed to have become unplugged in the night. Possibly in my tossing and turning, the cord had somehow come out of the socket. It was late in the morning, far later than I usually woke up, and Chester was frustrated because he hadn't had breakfast yet. He didn't say anything, but he seemed glum and looked at me with justifiable annoyance and hunger. I did my best to prepare him some scrambled eggs and bacon, but in my pain and fatigue, I managed to burn the bacon and cook the eggs to an unpleasant, rubbery consistency. I deeply regret what happened next. I swore about the bacon, the eggs, the pan, the stove, the landlord, my dead husband, and anyone and anything that could conceivably be even somewhat to blame for the ruined breakfast. I know it was wrong to react like that in front of my son. I know it was immature, but I was tired in pain, and just wished desperately I could go back to bed. When I'd finished with my profanity-laced rant, I heard the back door closing and looked out the window to see Chester fleeing out into the forest, visibly distressed. Shit, I muttered to myself, and ran out the door after him, calling for him to come back. I tripped on one of the fallen iron fence posts and fell to the ground, knocking the air from my lungs. When I recovered enough to stand up, Chester was long gone, vanished among the trees. I looked through those woods for hours. As I've described earlier, I don't know how large the forest behind my house is, but it feels odd that in all that time I never saw him. Chester's only ten years old. He isn't some sort of Olympic sprinter, and the foliage isn't so thick that I could have lost him that easily. I kept wandering among the trees, shouting Chester's name with increasing panic. Sometimes I thought I'd hear a branch snapping or a child's giggle, and I would turn about, desperately trying to catch a glimpse of the sound's source, but there would be nothing there. It was fairly far along. It was fairly far along in the afternoon when I finally decided to head back and call the police. Despite how long I'd spent in the forest, it was a remarkably quick walk back to the house. It felt almost as if the walk into the woods was somehow further than the walk out. I opened the door and started moving to the bedroom to get my phone, when I suddenly saw Chester sitting on the couch, reading a book. I nearly wept with relief and rushed to hug him, apologizing over and over for scaring him and asking if he was okay. I was so happy to see my son again, I wasn't even angry with him for running off. I'm all right, Mom. I'm really sorry for running off. I was just scared. I won't do that again. Please don't be angry, said Chester, tears welling up in his eyes. I froze. 
Chester rarely spoke more than a single word at a time. His longest sentences I could remember before this were maybe three or four words long at most. This was utterly unprecedented, and I had no idea how to react whatsoever. Mom, are you okay? He asked, looking at me with a confused look on his face. The next week went by very strangely. To be very clear, autism isn't something that just goes away. It's not a disease, it's not something that can be cured. And yet, Chester no longer showed any signs of his previous behavior whatsoever. His personality seemed intact. The sort of things he now spoke aloud seemed relatively in keeping with the sentences he would have previously written on the whiteboard. He still had the same love of reading, the same interest in ghost stories. He still played with the same toys. In all respects, he was the exact same boy as before. Simply now, he was neurotypical. He didn't have to wear earplugs out in public anymore, and true to his word, he never ran off when under stress. He didn't even flap his hands, he just kept them calmly at his sides. It was totally surreal. One day I was teaching him his lessons out in the woods, and he told me, Mom, I think I want to go to regular school. I want to be with the other kids. I was completely taken aback. Chester had never showed even the slightest interest in going to a public school before this, and on the few occasions he'd had to interact with other children, he'd been far too shy to play with them. Of course, I told him I'd be happy to send him to school. What else was I supposed to say? That night, I sent off emails to the nearest schools in the area, asking about late enrollment. It was the second week after Chester's sudden and unprecedented transformation that I began to notice something else that was strange. Despite the fact that we were spending a decent amount of time outside in the woods, Chester never left any dirty footprints in the house anymore. It wasn't that he had suddenly become more careful about taking his shoes off, he was still running inside with his sneakers on, the same as he always had, but there was never any dirt or mud. I just assumed at the time he must have been wiping his shoes off while I wasn't looking, and in all honesty, I didn't pay it much mind. He also didn't eat very much anymore. He didn't snack at all, and whenever I prepared his meals, he only ate very small portions. He never showed any signs of weakness or that he was losing weight, so I didn't bother him about it. There would be no point in forcing him to eat more than he wanted to, but it did strike me as very odd. It wasn't until the incident with the mirror that I realized that it wasn't my son. I was looking for some books I'd packed away in cardboard boxes in the spare room. There wasn't a lot of space on the bookshelf in the living room, so I tended to switch out the books on a semi-regular basis for the ones kept in the spare room, aside from a handful of mainstays. It was while I was doing so that Chester walked over to the doorway and asked me where I had put his toy robot. I looked up from what I was doing to answer him when I caught something out of the corner of my eye, something deeply wrong. It was the old silver mirror pointed towards the doorway. It wasn't reflecting my son. I turned to look closer, my words dying on my lips as I gazed at the figure in the mirror. The old terror I'd always felt looking into such things resurfacing 
suddenly and violently. The thing was dressed in Chester's clothes, but that was about the only resemblance the thing bore to him. It was a crude marionette carved from untreated and unpainted wood, clumps of bark still clinging to it in places. The mouth had a jaw like that of a ventriloquist dummy, albeit with crooked teeth made from sharp flints jammed into the wood. I saw bits of old food stuck to the teeth and mouth, remnants of meals I had cooked earlier in the day. The eyes were simple holes with bits of colored glass like marbles held within. It was suspended above the ground by an inch or two by thick brown twine, like the sort one would use to close a package in days before packing tape. I stared in stunned silence at the mirror before turning around, only to find Chester standing there, head cocked slightly in confusion. Are you okay, Mom? He asked, with concern in his voice. I turned once again to the mirror, seeing the horrible puppet thing once again. I wanted to vomit as I watched its jaw work up and down mockingly. I'm sorry, I'll find it myself. I didn't mean to bother you, it said, before jerkily walking down the hallway to Chester's bedroom. That night, I watched Chester carefully in the bathroom mirror when he brushed his teeth, but there didn't seem to be anything strange about him at all. He moved like a person, not a puppet, and when I gently squeezed his shoulder, I felt flesh and bone underneath the fabric of his clothes, not hard wood and bark. I didn't sleep. Creepy as it may sound, I just sat in Chester's room and watched that thing lay in bed, snoring. It seemed to be asleep. I stayed there all night, just watching until it woke up the next morning, asking me what I was doing. I didn't respond and left without making breakfast. It's not like it would have needed it. I wasn't even sure where I was going at first. I was just driving to clear my head. I eventually realized I was en route to an antique store the next town over. I'd visited the store a few times before, looking for bits of furniture and the like immediately after moving. I didn't know why I was headed there now, but it felt almost as if I were being drawn there somehow. I pulled into the parking lot and left my car, pushing through the shop's door with a twinkling of a bell. I wasn't sure what I was looking for, I just wandered the store in a daze, looking around at the various bits of junk and knickknacks with disinterest. The whole store reeked of musty books and wood polish, the smell lulling me into a sort of trance as I meandered among the shelves stacked with discarded history. Eventually, though, I found something that struck my eye. It was a small, old hand mirror with a telltale tarnishing of real silver. It seemed to call to me somehow, and in my numbed state, I didn't even fear the blank-eyed reflection that looked back at me. I picked it up and looked at the price tag. $50. More than it was worth, but not too unreasonable. I picked it up and brought it to the counter, paying in cash. The store's proprietor, a thin old woman with graying hair and enormous spectacles, chuckled at me as she rang me up. Planning on making a vampire hunting kit, ma'am? She asked. What? I replied, the completely bizarre question startling me out of my stupor. Just a little joke. Halloween's coming up, and 
Once a few years back, I had a gentleman come in here and buy up all sorts of strange stuff. I asked him what he needed it for, and he told me he was going to dress up as Abraham Van Helsing for the occasion. He said he was making a vampire hunting kit. One of the items he bought was an old hand mirror, rather like this one. He asked me if it was real silver, and I told him yes, but asked why that mattered. I figured silver was always the sort of thing one would use for werewolves, not vampires. He told me that the reason why vampires didn't show their reflections in mirrors was that in the old days they were made of silver, and that silver was a symbol of purity. He said that if vampires were real and walking about nowadays, they'd be reflected back just fine, since nearly all modern mirrors are made with aluminum. Doesn't tarnish, I suppose. My mind flashed to Chester, brushing his teeth in the bathroom mirror, face as normal as could be reflecting back at me, before recalling the terrifying thing I'd seen in the old silver mirror. The old woman must have noticed me go pale. She asked me if I was all right. I nodded and left with the mirror, driving back home. I got back around lunchtime, and the thing that pretended to be my son asked me if I was okay, and if we would be having lunch soon. I angled the mirror so I could see its face, and saw that crude puppet mouth wagging in vague time with its speech. I told it to wait at the dinner table, and that I would be with it in a few minutes. It did as I said, sitting down and pretending to read a book with its glass eyes. I reached into the kitchen drawer and pulled out a pair of butcher's scissors. With the scissors in one hand and the hand mirror in the other, I walked behind the puppet thing, carefully angling the mirror so I could see where the strings connected to its wooden body. I looked to see where the strings led, to see if I could get a glance at the puppeteer, but it just seemed to extend impossibly into the ceiling passing through the plaster like a fishing line through water. It didn't notice what I was doing until I'd already cut the first string, the one connected to its left arm. It screeched in what sounded like pain, a horrible distorted cry that was a mix of mad piping and a child's scream. It swiped at me with the right arm, but I was too fast for it. After all, it was only wood and strings. I cut the other arm free, and both now fell limp at its sides. Next, I went for the legs, snipping the strings both in quick succession. Glancing up from the mirror, I saw what looked like my son floating in the air slightly, mouth wide open as it screamed. I cut the strings connecting its jaw and head, and the thing collapsed to the floor in a silent heap. The illusion had been broken, and all that lay before me was a broken puppet. Far away in the distance, I could hear the sound of pipes playing faintly in the woods, a haunting melody which I cannot quite recall. I knew I couldn't go to the police with any of this. Who would believe a woman who claimed that her son had been replaced by a puppet? I'd be institutionalized at best, arrested for child abuse at worst, and that's assuming they ever managed to find the real Chester. I spent the rest of the day frantically researching on the internet, typing inane phrases like child replaced puppet music pipes or puppet mirror child double into the search engine, getting almost nothing useful in response, until I eventually came across some old website detailing European folklore, specifically the page on changelings. I read about medieval peasants convinced their children had been replaced with those of fairies, 
how their real children had been taken to the woods to be raised by the monsters which stole them. I read of the ways one could protect oneself from the so-called fair folk, of their hatred of iron. I remembered the wrought iron fence that surrounded the house, the conspicuous gap where a tree must have broken through as it fell. I've written this in case I don't come back. I've written this so that if I'm ever found, they don't think I just performed a murder-suicide in the woods out of grief. I love my son dearly, and I am going to save him from the monsters that took him from me. I can hear the hideous music of their eldritch pipes drifting through the trees, mocking me. I'm taking one of the broken iron posts with me. The tip is as sharp as a spear. Tiny Terrors is an anthology horror podcast produced by Pulp Audio and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. This episode was directed by Cole Weavers, with sound production and editing by Mike LeBeau. To find additional information or to join our Patreon for additional content and ad-free episodes, visit our website, www.tinyterrorspod.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Tiny Terrors Pod. Or join the Pulp Audio Discord by clicking the link in the description below. Rate and review us on Spotify and Apple. And finally, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.